Janati Sawyerov, the chairman of the U.S. Transhumanism Party. And I want to talk to Janati today about the current state of the transhumanism movement, where it's been, what it is, where it's headed, especially in the context of the U.S. You know, political environment, and just also in in terms of the uh, the cultural environment of how susceptible people might be to ideas of transhumanism, futurism more broadly. Interestingly, you know, just to set up a couple of questions I have for you, I have kind of noticed that there's a little bit of a lot of pessimism in the air right now around whether or not anything's improving technologically wise or um, culturally wise. I mean, you know, we were just kind of speaking about how like housing prices are kind of crazy. Millennials are kind of bummed out on life, you know, right now for various reasons. A couple of things like that, that is a little bit of a backdrop that's interesting to me in in terms of talking to somebody who's who's really into the, like that, the movement of looking forward and, and advocating for things being better for humanity. So I want to get I want to get there in this talk, but um, let's let's kind of start with um, a little bit about yourself, who you are, how you got involved in the transhumanism movement. So my name is Janati Stolirov II. I'm the chairman of the U.S. Transhumanist Party. I have been the chairman of the U.S. Transhumanist Party for a bit over six years, since November 17th, 2016, and. Zoltan Istvan, who was the founder of the U.S. Transhumanist Party, asked me to be his successor as chairman. He was the first chairman. He was also the first presidential candidate. He ran for president in 2016. For two years prior to that, he had his immortality bus campaign, essentially an awareness-raising tour for transhumanism, for the ideas of radical life extension. And I had known Zoltan from prior to that time because in 2013, I reviewed his book, The Transhumanist Wager, and it was a nuanced review. So I recognized some of the strengths of the book, but I also offered some critiques. What Zoltan appreciated about my review was that it honestly engaged with the book, unlike many of the critical reviews that he faced and he saw that i had a rational and structured approach toward transhumanist materials so that set off a few years where we collaborated on various endeavors so for instance when i published my book death is wrong which is still the world's only illustrated children's book on indefinite life extension i published that book in December 2013, and Zoltan helped to publicize it. Then when Zoltan founded the US Transhumanist Party, after nearly a year, he asked me to found the Nevada Transhumanist Party, and he gave me a lot of free reign in doing that so I could essentially structure that organization as I saw fit. And that was the first registered state level transhumanist party. And so when Zoltan went on tour with his immortality bus campaign, there were some differences within the transhumanist movement. Some people were not as pleased with Zoltan's approach. And I served in the role of a mediator of tensions. So there were certain concerns that I think were legitimate or at least could have been reasonably engaged in with those people. And 
I think I made some progress. Obviously, one cannot please everyone, but Zoltan was impressed at how I was able to mediate those tensions. And I think he saw me as the logical successor, as somebody who could potentially unite the transhumanist movement and the various perspectives within it. So this is what I have strived to do over the past six years, create a big tent organization where mm -hmm. not matter whether you consider yourself Republican or Democrat or libertarian or green or socialist or anarchist or apolitical, because we seek to transcend all of those differences. As long as you are honestly interested in pursuing a brighter future for humankind, you are welcome within the U.S. Transhumanist Party. And of course, we have our three core ideals, support mm -hmm. for significant life extension achieved through the progress of science and technology, support for a rational societal, political, and cultural atmosphere informed and animated by reason, science, and secular values, as well as support for the use of science, technology, and rational discourse to reduce and eliminate the existential risks facing humanity. So with agreement on those broad aspirations, you could have a wide variety of particular ideas mm -hmm. about pursue those. And in the course of our deliberations, we would welcome that kind of input from people of a variety of perspectives. So that is what I've tried to do with this organization. It is a very different approach from the tribal polarizing mainstream American politics that exists today, where essentially each of the tribes, the red tribe and the blue tribe, as I like to call them, <laughs> to paint the other tribe as this unacceptable enemy. And if you don't embrace completely the program of that particular tribe, then you must belong to the other tribe and you must be the enemy and you at best will be shunned, at worst uh, persecuted in some way on social media or even in physical space with the cancel culture that exists today. So the transhumanist party seeks to transcend this kind of polarized vitriolic environment, which as you pointed out, uh, has contributed to the deterioration of our political climate, our cultural climate, certainly over the past seven years or so, though the roots of that go back uh, a lot further in time. Mm -hmm. And my hope is in being an example of what a good political paradigm could be like, what an inclusive and issue-oriented political paradigm could be like. The U.S. Transhumanist Party can help humankind to emerge out of the present crisis. That's excellent. Yeah. So uh, Zoltan is an interesting point of contact that we have. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you know him quite a bit better than I do, but I met him at the, uh, the Biohack the Planet conference several years ago. I had recently written about the need for futurism in politics for uh, Quillette. And so we talked about that. He ended up blurbing my uh, book that just came out a couple of years ago, uh, The Singularity Survival Guide, which is kind of a, um, it's a satire about, you know, robots are taking over. How do we survive this? And it's like taking for granted that robots are going to, you know, be smarter than humans and, and take over. Just kind of having fun with the topic. But um, 
I mean, Zoltan is is a very strong libertarian. He's, you know, he's very much like all of his ideas kind of revolve around libertarianism. In my mind, just because, I guess, because of his influence on the transhumanism party, um, I've always kind of considered it a little bit, you know, or, or, or you know, pretty, pretty like leaning towards libertarianism. Um, is that kind of like not true anymore? And And also like, you know, how would a let's say conservative Republican in any other world, how would they actually fit inside of the uh, transhumanist party, would you say? So as I stated, the US transhumanist party is a big tent and yes, we mm -hmm. have libertarian and libertarian leaning members who I would say have a considerable voice in terms of voting on our platform for instance, because we use ranked preference voting internally to determine the provisions of our US Transhumanist Party platform. However, we also have some members who are socialists, we have some members mm. who are centrists, and they bring a diversity of viewpoints. The key is to find what areas they have in common or what policy proposals are at least palatable enough to the vast majority of our members that they would not be essentially alienated from the transhumanist party so mm -hmm. when it comes to personal freedom for instance we are strongly in favor and aligned with libertarians on those issues certainly one important concept within transhumanist discourse is the idea of morphological freedom. So essentially the idea to determine what happens to one's body and one's life and for instance how to apply technology to one's body whether to pursue uh, for instance biological life extension or genetic enhancements or artificial organs that would be another area of morphological freedom and I would say libertarians would agree that a person has sovereignty over <laughs> his or her organism. Then there is the question of economic freedom. And in our U.S. Transhumanist Party platform, we do have some libertarian-oriented economic positions, but they do seek to transcend this 20th century dichotomy between capitalism and socialism. And one example that is prominent here is the concept of a universal basic income. So what is it? Is that capitalism or is it socialism? And some people might allege, well, a UBI is socialism because the government is giving money away. But then we have to ask the question, in what manner is the UBI funded? So on the one hand, if one were to fund the UBI through taxation, then a good case could be made that that's essentially old-fashioned redistribution of wealth. Although even then, one could make the case that this is better than conditional means-tested welfare, because with conditional means-tested welfare, there needs to be an immense bureaucracy to administer it and figure out who qualifies for eligibility uh, for this kind of aid. On the other hand, if you have an unconditional system, technically it could be very simple to administer. Verify that you exist, and then if you exist, you receive the allotted universal basic income. 
But mm -hmm. the U.S. Humanist Party platform is even more innovative in that because it supports a UBI that doesn't involve taxation at all. It mm -hmm. is funded by what is called a federal land dividend. And this is an idea that Zoltan originated. And his idea is to take advantage of the vast amounts of completely unused federal land. In some Western states, the federal government even owns the majority of the land. In Nevada, it's about 85% or so. Wow. So this land could be leased to private corporations or other organizations, and the proceeds from those leases get to pay for a universal basic income. And while we cannot say how much in advance those kinds of activities will generate, we do have an example of this in terms of the state of Alaska paying mm -hmm. its citizens a dividend based on the oil revenues that are generated there. And sometimes those checks are a few hundred dollars a year. Sometimes they're a couple thousand dollars a year. So it has fluctuated based on the oil revenues. Likewise, a UBI funded through this method would fluctuate based on the revenues. But this means it could be implemented in a manner that doesn't require raising taxes. So whatever right. one thinks about the current tax and spending structure, we can set that aside for the purposes of this proposal and just fund the UBI through whatever revenues come in from this implementation of the land dividend concept. Yeah, the uh, the the program in Alaska is very popular. I have some friends in Alaska. I'm from Washington State and went to college with a lot of people from Alaska. It's super popular up there, both whether you're red or blue. Everyone loves that program. It's it's an interesting idea to stretch that out. Um, I haven't thought about it enough to have a strong opinion about it, other than I think that it's it's definitely something worth looking into. I think it's fascinating. This, this is kind of like the reason why I think that the Transhumanist Party makes sense as a political organization, because in general, transhumanism... It's kind of a philosophical concept. It's it's ancient. It goes back to, you know, you can trace trace it back to you know the the, the Greeks with Prometheus, this sort of a thing. We just want to overcome death, and we want to make the most out of being alive, and value consciousness over strange like God ideas. You know, there's there, there's so much there, and a lot of it's very, very philosophical, but it makes sense as a political party because to achieve any of the objectives, which are I think like so pro-human and they're benefiting humanity like more than anything else. It comes down to like, there's such big projects. You need government funding. You can't cure cancer or you can't really work on longevity research unless you have a government behind it. I think, I mean, if you look at the budget of any private company, it is nothing compared to like the U S military. Right. I mean, the government just has so much money. You, you, at some point you kind of need that funding to be able to, really move forward, I think, with these projects. Um, so I, I want to get your thoughts a little bit about how you think the U.S., maybe at the state level or the federal level or both, should allocate resources so that they prioritize some transhumanist agendas like life extension, uh, like overcoming cancer, like, you know, merging with machines, wh whatever is kind of like your your pet or favorite uh, project. What what do you think like the U.S. government should be doing? How, how would you, if you were in charge, perhaps um, allocate funds? And I have a pragmatic outlook toward this because, 
for me, what is most important is that we do achieve these goals within the next several decades and the sooner mm -hmm. the better. So whether they're privately funded or governmentally funded, that is a secondary question. I would say the most important decision that governments could make is redirect the vast amounts of military spending that I consider wasteful to yeah. scientific research. And in that case, it's a win-win situation because right now, a lot of these funds are devoted to overseas occupation. And the US maintains bases in tens of different countries. As recent events have prominently illustrated, the US sends vast amounts of weapons abroad to fuel foreign conflicts. And imagine what could have been done with that funding if the weapons had stayed in the US. Of course, right now, uh, just because the weapons are in existence already and they're sent to uh, another country doesn't mean that costs no money. It does cost money to pay various defense contractors to replace those weapons, which is why this is such a lucrative situation for the military industrial complex. So the US Transhumanist Party supports replacing the military industrial complex with a scientific industrial complex. And that would include certain areas of research currently carried out by the military. For instance, an agency like DARPA would be entirely acceptable for transhumanists because they actually do contribute to scientific advancement in transportation or artificial intelligence, as long as these findings are not kept secret, as long as they're disseminated mm -hmm. to the broader public. Also, the newly established ARPA-H, the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health, is quite a promising development uh, precisely for that same reason that this is an agency that is specifically focused on innovation so it might be unshackled from the conventional bureaucratic constraints. NASA and space exploration more generally are areas that the government should support, but we do have to be careful about how the programs are structured because mm -hmm there could be situations where there are strings attached or there are incentives which reward research projects that are more incremental, more likely to succeed, but less ambitious in their goals because the funding bodies allocate money in ways that essentially are motivated by accountability to external constituencies. So if they invest money in a more risky line of research that could be spectacularly successful, but could also not yield any results, then they might be criticized for wasting taxpayers' money. So ironically, one big problem with government spending is there is too much accountability. There is mm. too much external oversight. And as a result, the more ambitious research funding does not occur through governments. It generally occurs through philanthropy because mm -hmm. there are issues with private corporations funding research as well. That research tends to be more short-termist because especially publicly traded corporations are motivated by the goal of maximizing quarterly or annual earnings, or at best they have some sort of five-year plan. But really for transhumanist research projects, we need to have decades long horizons and we mm -hmm. need to have people motivated 
over the course of decades to pursue those projects without fear of losing their sources of funding. And this is where mission-dedicated philanthropic organizations are so important. Mm -hmm. I know that one of the big goals for tr the Transhumanist Party is to work towards achieving abundance. And in my mind, when people say abundance, that means, I mean, one, I think UBI is, is kind of part of that, but but primarily energy abundance and water abundance. Those are the things that I, I think that people just very much worry about. Also, you know, housing and food, a couple of the other things. But energy is the one that I feel like is right now very unstable and it's maybe going in a worrisome direction that I'm kind of on board with this idea that I don't think that a lot of the green energy is going to suffice for our major cities. I think that we need to start working to build out our nuclear infrastructure quite a bit more. Um, I'm curious your thoughts about, you know, the energy world, but also in, in general, what, what, what is your, 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 what would be your plan for working towards um, more abundance rather than scarcity? Yes, and I think these are important areas to focus on. So with regard to energy, the kinds of nuclear power plants that can be built with current technology are far safer than mm -hmm. the old 1960s, 1970s era nuclear power plants. And ironically, the alarmism that has pervaded the general culture since the Three Mile Island incident in 1979, and particularly since the Fukushima uh, nuclear power plant disruption uh, as a result of the earthquake in Japan in 2011, has stalled the implementation of these next generation nuclear power plants, which are a lot safer, mm -hmm. and ironically has left us with the older more meltdown prone nuclear power plants. So I do think it's essential to modernize the infrastructure of nuclear power plants and build many new plants of the new designs, which are essentially meltdown proof. Mm -hmm. And of course, exploring the utilization of the thorium fuel cycle uh, within that would be quite helpful. I also think hydroelectric and geothermal energy sources can be mm -hmm. quite reliable. So we should be opposed to efforts to uh, destroy the old hydroelectric dams that have provided a lot of power to uh, citizens, especially in the Western United States. And we should support the construction of new dams and the construction of geothermal stations. Solar and wind power have their uses, but I think it's important to focus on reliable storage capacity for electricity. This is the mm -hmm. remaining hurdle with solar power. Solar panels have become a lot less expensive and can compete with coal uh, in terms of the cost per kilowatt hour. And perhaps in the not too distant future, they will even be able to compete with natural gas, for example. However, there is this intermittency problem with mm -hmm. power, and that needs to be overcome through the development of some sort of storage capability. So you could, for instance, generate the solar power during the day and make use of it later at night if you don't use everything that you've generated during the day. So in terms of water, I think that's also an important consideration. Having desalination plants built along the ocean coasts, I think, is a great solution because it could address multiple problems at once. If 
there are increased droughts, especially in inland areas as a result of climate change. The desalination plants could be used to pipe that water to the inland areas. And at the same time, if one engages in enough desalination activity, one could actually somewhat affect the sea level rise, the rise in the ocean levels. So we essentially try to solve two problems at once with that kind of approach. It would require mm -hmm. vast infrastructure building. And again, there is this question of which entities are best suited to doing that. Can private entities contribute to this infrastructure? Well, we've seen with companies like SpaceX, for instance, that they have tried with the tunnels uh, underneath cities, for instance, uh, or with building out the solar infrastructure or the charging infrastructure for uh, electric vehicles. However, if governments decided to fund some desalination plants, I certainly would not be opposed to that. I think in reality, this would be a combination effort, but there are so many wasteful government programs right now, especially at the federal level, uh, whose funding could be redirected to infrastructure of this sort. And with food, you could have vertical farming, for mm -hmm. example, even though there is still plenty of arable land. Humankind actually mm -hmm. has not utilized nearly all of the land that is available for cultivation. However, if people want to, for instance, have more local supply chains and someone who lives in a big city doesn't want to import as much food from large distances away, then creating skyscrapers that double as vertical farms would be a sustainable option that could potentially increase the amount of arable land in proximity indefinitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all, see, all that makes perfect sense to me. And, y you know, it is so interesting how I, I think a lot of this is just kind of, at least to a, a millennial, someone younger, it's just kind of a common sense thing to have this vision for humanity. It's not even that radical, you know, but I mean, you did kind of touch on something that is another reason why in my mind, I feel like transhumanism is does kind of like lean towards a libertarian worldview in that to take on big, huge projects and get them done cost effectively, you can't have too many burdensome regulations, which leans, you know, kind of away from Democrats. Yet to do things like radical life extension, you can't be too, you know, moralistic about things like stem cells, for example, which makes you can't be too conservative Republican. So you gotta kinda like fall someplace in the middle. This is kinda like where, you know, how I see things. I'm not, I'm more, you know, quite a bit more liberal than Republican, although, you know, I, I see the gripes that people have with too much regulation. But um, I mean, I, I don't wanna get too much into that because I think it's just kinda like it is what it is. But how would you sell the transhumanism party not, not to a conservative, not to a liberal, but I mean, just to a normie, someone who doesn't really engage in politics that much. Um, I'm thinking of like my father-in-law who like three years in the Trump presidency didn't know who Mike Pence was, that that sort of a person. Maybe let me just, just couch or, or, you know, add one more note to this, 
which is that um, I was on, on the website last night, the Transhumanism Party website, and it looks like less than 4,000 people have signed up to the party at, at this point, which seems like crazy low. I, I'm shocked it's not like 400,000 at this point. Um, why, why aren't more people, maybe maybe even normies or people with, with some sort of like a positive vision for humanity, why, why aren't people quicker to, uh, to jump on board? Yes, so I will answer your first question first, which is how to appeal to essentially fairly ordinary people who do not take as much of an interest in politics. <laughs> what I would say is transhumanism fundamentally is about making life better and pursuing mm -hmm. the scientific and technological advances for doing that. And really, this is a fundamental aspiration of human beings. Most of us, unless there are some Luddites among us, are implicit transhumanists in that we do not hesitate to use technology to improve our well-being, to broaden our capabilities beyond what they would be otherwise. And people who have smartphones, for instance, or people who wear eyeglasses, people who use computers are implicit transhumanists, and they really stand on the shoulders of giants, of great technological innovators and scientific minds who have helped bring these advances about. But there's no logical stopping point with these advances. That is to say, in every era of human history, there's a different level of advancement. And just because people are more comfortable with some technologies than others, does not mean that by default, those technologies are somehow more acceptable than the others which haven't yet come into being. So mm -hmm. in terms of communicating transhumanism, I would emphasize this is not a radical break with the past or the present. It is a logical continuation of what humans throughout history have done and have wanted to do for the purpose of improving our lives. And if people come to recognize that they are already acting as transhumanists in many areas of their lives, particularly if they do like to be early adopters or if they do look to technology for certain solutions, like if they have a health problem and there's an emerging medical treatment that could cure that problem, I think many people would be quite interested. So <laughs> that is a point of common ground, which I think could be found with almost everybody, not a Ted Kaczynski type, not a doctrinaire, uh, anti-technology activist or a doctrinaire bioconservative. However, for the vast majority of people who don't fit those descriptions, there is an affinity to transhumanism that could be utilized to get them to join the movement. Why haven't more people join the movement. As you pointed out, our membership right now is actually around 4,000 since that statement was published on our website. Several months have passed, and so we did attract membership to be at approximately 4,000. But you're correct that the scale needs to be much larger. And I would say there are two challenges here. One is the awareness gap, where most people just don't know what the term transhumanism means. There's more knowledge of it 
among journalists or academics or even politicians as contrasted with the general public. But among the general public, I think most of the time people are focused on their immediate day-to-day -day lives. And if they delve into philosophy or other big ideas, it is because they have available time and generally enough material resources to make them comfortable and give them the understanding that if they spend a few hours or for some people a few months delving into these ideas, then their lives will be just as good. They don't have any urgent crises that they have to address. And unfortunately, as you also alluded to in the beginning of our interview, since about 2015, this has not been the reality for most people. So actually, when Zoltan founded the US Transhumanist Party, I would say the prospects for growth of the transhumanist movement were a bit more optimistic because most people's lives were still fairly decent. Yes, there was the aftermath of the Great Recession and there had been a kind of feeling of a lingering stagnation, but there wasn't this sense of crisis after crisis after crisis after crisis in the short term with very unpredictable consequences, but the need to react very quickly. And I think this has been the experience of people all over the socioeconomic spectrum in the United States, but an endless succession of crises, of course, most recently, the COVID-19 pandemic and the fallout of the war in Ukraine, which included massive inflation, for example, and further supply chain disruptions. That kind of continual environment of beleaguerment really uh, prevents people from looking toward bigger ideas unless mm -hmm. those bigger ideas essentially announce themselves as solutions to the crises at hand. And I do believe that transhumanism could be the solution to all of these issues. Ultimately, I think we need to get rid of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Without getting rid of it, it's going to continue to mutate. It's going to continue to infect people. And the cumulative health damage, the cumulative economic damage is going to be devastating. So we need to get rid of this virus. But the current approaches have not been working. I think we need to genetically engineer uh, some sort of harmless virus that outcompetes the existing strains of SARS-CoV-2. So just like the Omicron variant and then its subvariants displaced all of the prior variants, I think we need genetic engineering to develop a harmless version of SARS-CoV-2, which is more transmissible, but will essentially uh, have much greater reproductive fitness than all of the other strains. So all of the other strains would disappear and then we will finally be rid of this pandemic. So that could be a solution to the COVID-19 pandemic. We need a solution to the prospect of nuclear war as well as war in general. And I think advocacy for nuclear disarmament worldwide should be a transhumanist priority. It certainly is a priority of the US transhumanist party. So if transhumanists could contribute to a solution that essentially gets us past the great filter in terms of existential risk, 
then this would also elevate transhumanism in the public eye. Of course, another major area in which transhumanism could contribute immensely is in the fight against disease and particularly against biological aging. Dr. Mm -hmm. Aubrey de Grey, who recently created the LEV Foundation, and I'm one of the directors of the LEV Foundation, LEV stands for Longevity Escape Velocity. So Aubrey de Grey foresees a tipping point in public attitudes toward life extension. Right now, most people still think that either it is unrealistic or it might happen, but it will not happen in time for them. At the same time, I would say about 50% of the population would not mind having their lifespan significantly extended through science and technology. So if enough advancement is made in terms of the basic research that this perception begins to change and people will see, oh, mouse lifespans have been expanded dramatically or uh, certain diseases that were once thought to be incurable have cures for them now. For instance, various gene therapies have already been developed for certain so-called orphan diseases, which didn't have drugs to treat them. And uh, of course, famously, Liz Parrish, who was our US Transhumanist Party 2020 vice presidential nominee, as she in 2015 did a combination gene therapy on herself to help reverse some of the aspects of biological aging. So these gene therapies are now becoming increasingly prominent. And if that continues, people will start to recognize, oh, maybe this is a problem that could be solved. Maybe this will happen in time for us. And this could lead to a massive surge in public interest, even before the medical technologies and therapies become broadly available to the public. So what <laughs> Aubrey de Grey is saying is there could come a moment in time when the public anticipation actually arrives sooner than the medical interventions themselves. And we need to be ready for that. We need to be ready to capitalize on that surge in public interest. But I would say right now, the pandemic and also prior to that, the increasing political polarization in the United States have unfortunately deferred the arrival of that era compared to when it could have arrived. I think if circumstances had been a bit different, we could have had the beginning of the transhuman era around 2020 or even as far back as 2015. You know, I think all that is a really great pitch for anyone to, to come on board with the movement. Um, but, you know, I, I do wonder a little bit if the transhumanist party sometimes messages too too broadly as is too big in a sense that you know, there's that cliche in in uh you know politics that um you know why do people vote the way they do well it's, it's, it's the economy stupid that sort of thing and that people just kind of think about you know we have debates about gas prices as if joe biden has anything to do with that or if trump as if trump had anything to do with that in my everyday life people talk about housing prices Rent is going up. Uh, you know, increasingly, homes are unaffordable for young people, and groceries are expensive quite a bit. You know, I, I, it's hard to get a, a 
cappuccino for less than six bucks these days, you know, in California. Basically, like, like that. What, what, what's a transhumanist as a political organization and movement? What is their answer to people's just, you know, pocketbook? scenario or the fact that like they feel like they're not getting ahead they feel like and we, we know in fact that millennials are, are less wealthy than their parents uh, what what's the what's the talking point on that and these are of course all very salient and legitimate concerns the transhumanist answer would be we need to create sustainable superabundance to make sure that these resources and these assets are so widespread so easy to produce that the kind of scarcity that leads to high prices or high costs of living doesn't exist anymore. So with housing, I would say it's entirely a supply side issue because not <laughs> enough houses are being built to match the rising demand and the demand- Are you, has... are you in favor of uh, getting rid of zoning? I'm just yes. curious. Yes, okay. I am yeah, absolutely in favor of getting rid of zoning. I'm in favor of getting rid of restrictions on development, especially from local activist groups who seem to oppose any sort of project, no matter what it is, on the grounds mm -hmm. that it somehow destroy the character of the neighborhood, or really on the grounds that it would adversely impact the real uh, estate prices, the resale prices of their homes. So if those community groups could, through a change in the protocols, be clearly informed that they don't really have a say over what gets done on private property unless they try to work in a consensual manner with the developers. Then I think we would see a lot more development, including of housing that would be genuinely affordable. And I know the term affordable housing has become a euphemism for something else. I really think it needs to be used in its broader, more literal meaning as in housing that is affordable. And I would say mm -hmm. single family homes for most middle class Americans used to be affordable even 30 years ago. So before the housing bubble of the mid 2000s, most Americans with middle class incomes could afford a single family house. And that was the American dream. That was the expectation. If you had a decent income, like $50,000 a year plus, you could afford a house in this country. And now there are places, say in the Bay Area, where you could have an income of $200,000 a year and not be able to afford a house. And you would pay $5,000 in rent uh, per month for some dingy 50-year-old uh, apartment building that you share with four roommates. Yep. And that was that was me two years ago. I just got <laughs> out of the Bay Area a year and a half ago. <laughs> or no, like a year ago. Yeah. Yeah, that was me. That was me. <laughs> yes. And understandably, living in that environment generates a sense of decline. Mm -hmm. that it does, yeah. Quite suddenly in historical terms, what was seen as a cornerstone of a decent standard of living is not available to people who by all other metrics are fairly well off at least on paper they are so something has happened within the past 20 years or so that has dramatically increased scarcity within many areas of american life so mm -hmm. restrictions on development are 
one aspect of this. I think hyper-bureaucratization, which increases the costs of production, is another aspect. Over-optimization of supply chains is yet another problem that we have seen manifest itself during the COVID-19 pandemic because essentially the just-in-time inventory approach or lean manufacturing, they are premised on everything working according to very precise expectations and timetables. And in reality, outcomes are a lot more variable than that. And if you create a complex supply chain where everything has to be just so in order to work out, yes, maybe if it does work out, it will save you a little bit of money each time that it does. But the probability is so much higher that it won't work out unless you have redundancies, unless you have excess supply on hand at every stage of production, unless you have alternatives in case uh, one of your sources fails for whatever reason. And of course, if you have more local supply chains, then you don't need to worry about as many failure points. So mm -hmm. robustness of supply chains needs to be prioritized over hyper-optimization. And moreover, if you consider the financial system and how the financial system has gone astray since the start of this millennium, essentially it shifted from a fairly small C conservative focus of essentially prudent financial management, gradual accumulation over time to more of a gambling focus where you focus on maximizing short-term profits, mm -hmm. you hyper leverage your assets. And a great example of that was the recent spectacular failure of FTX under Sam Bankman Fried, who essentially uh, leveraged all of the assets that he had in the hopes of making outsized returns. But that could only be possible as long as the markets were rising, including the markets and cryptocurrencies. And once they fell enough, the entire scheme unraveled. So these are, I would say, age-old vices and temptations, but they have been unleashed early in this millennium in such a way that eroded the buffers of resources and the margins of safety that people had in prior decades and would have had otherwise. So transhumanism would solve this by enabling those resource buffers to be rebuilt very quickly. We need technologies of truly sustainable mass production. We need 3D printing of houses. We need mm -hmm. tabletop 3D printers that can work with various materials. We need more localized but high-tech production facilities to manufacture every sort of good that people could conceivably want. And with 3D printing, that would be a lot easier to achieve. And of course, vertical farming, as I mentioned before. So with transhumanism, we could have less dependence on these overarching systems and more of an ability to empower individuals to produce what they need or have it produced in very close proximity with ready access. So last week or recently, uh, Peter Thiel gave a talk at Stanford 
And he he basically you know articulated and expounded upon his idea or the idea of the uh, the great stagnation, the stagnation hypothesis that there's right now really major slowdown in science and technology and economic progress uh, in the U.S. and globally. That's that's an idea that's out there, um, and I think that he he makes a good case for it. At the same time, you know, if you listen to Ray Kurzweil, who's right now going around and and you know doing some podcasts, he was on Lex Friedman's podcast not too long ago. If you listen to him, he still you know gives a really ambitious outlook for the next decade, and makes it sound like by you know the next ten years we're really going to have uh, everything is in society is going to be radically altered by technology. Do you have any thoughts about this? Are you worried about stagnation as Peter Thiel articulates it? Or do you think that technology is ultimately, you know, making progress? I would say both Peter Thiel and Ray Kurzweil are right in their own ways. So Ray Kurzweil is correct that there is a tendency for technological know-how to accelerate. So he pointed out through the great disruptions of history, the Great Depression, the world wars, uh, for instance, computer processing power continued to progress, of course, through different paradigms. It wasn't uh, all microprocessors in the early 20th century, clearly. But through these different paradigms, computing power has improved because the knowledge of how to build more powerful computers has continued to improve. Where Ray Kurzweil's predictions have uh, perhaps had a disconnect is in the societal implementation of these technologies. So for instance, in his earlier books, like The Age of Spiritual Machines, Ray Kurzweil predicted autonomous vehicles by the year 2009. And sure enough, there was autonomous vehicle technology by the year 2009. If there had been the societal will, it could have been implemented back then but it would have required perhaps trillions of dollars of funding and widespread public enthusiasm, which still unfortunately does not exist for autonomous vehicles, even though today's models are much more advanced than the ones from 2009. And they could save most of the lives that are lost in car accidents today. But there are instances, for instance, where an autonomous vehicle ran somebody over while it was in manual mode and the safety driver wasn't looking, the famous incident in Tempe, Arizona, for example, where uh, essentially Uber intentionally disengaged the safety braking system and the safety driver in that vehicle, who was supposed to brake, was not paying attention and a woman got run over and killed. So that became a major news story, even though over 40,000 people die from car accidents involving human drivers every year in the US. And those deaths seldom receive a mention in the local newspaper, not to mention uh, this kind of national press coverage. So Ray Kurzweil, from a technical perspective, was largely on track with his predictions. But from a societal implementation perspective, of course, our society has not accepted a lot of these emerging advances. And this is where Peter Thiel, uh, I think, has a point that there has been a stagnation brought about by institutions and by public opinion that 
either through unawareness or through fear, has not been willing to accept a lot of the new advancements unless a case could be made essentially exhaustively that they would be completely safe, completely palatable to everyone, which is extremely hard to do and which is not the way that technologies have advanced in the past. So nobody asked the public to vote on whether Henry Ford's Model T automobile should replace the horse-drawn carriage. It just happened that Henry Ford made enough of these automobiles and enough people wanted to buy these automobiles that this became a possibility and there was a paradigm shift. But the Model T Ford had issues too, as do all manually driven automobiles. So there were a lot of accidents. There were a lot of accidents before with horse-drawn carriages as well, uh, which I think people don't appreciate. And there was an immense amount of mess and disease risk caused by the preponderance of horses in cities prior to the early 20th century. So the automobile introduced some new risks, but it also took away some of the older risks. And this is the case with every generation of technological advancement. But unfortunately, in the recent 20 years especially, there has been a kind of institutional reluctance and public ambivalence toward these new technologies. And this is where transhumanist advocacy is very important because we need to figure out a way to overcome that reluctance and convey the benefits of these technologies, which are technically feasible. And I think if we had a society that fully embraced transhumanism as a philosophy, then Ray Kurzweil's timeframes could become reality, not just from an existence standpoint for these technologies, but also from an adoption standpoint. There's a lot there, but yeah, I really like I really like your take on that. Um, just to wrap up, um, tell me what's next for the Transhumanism Party and how can people get involved? Well, to get involved, please go to our website at transhumanist-party.org and then click on the link for membership or you can go directly to transhumanist-party.org slash membership and join for free. It takes less than a minute. You can join no matter where you are in the world. About 30% of our members are allied members. And while they cannot vote in US elections, they can participate in our internal deliberations. We have a Facebook group that is quite popular called Transhumanist Party. We have a Facebook page called US Transhumanist Party. We have a Twitter account called US Transhumanist Party, uh, US Transhumanist for Twitter, an Instagram account called US Transhumanist Party spelled all together. And you can also follow my YouTube channel, which is G. Stolyarov II, so first initial of my first name, then my last name, followed by two capital I's. And on YouTube, we stream our weekly virtual enlightenment salons at 1 p.m. Pacific time every Sunday. We have conversations with leading thinkers in biotechnology, in other aspects of science, in philosophy, in culture, in politics, in art. So these are in-depth conversations that one will seldom encounter in that particular format. It's essentially the format of an 18th century Enlightenment salon. So please tune in and participate in our YouTube chat for the virtual Enlightenment salons. 
And please let me know if you have ideas for starting local transhumanist communities. So we need people on the ground in every jurisdiction, in every state, in every city, essentially even forming a group of three to five people who meet regularly, who discuss emerging technologies, who put on presentations, who communicate with others in that area to help the grassroots spread of these ideas. As I pointed out, the awareness problem is one of the biggest obstacles that we have to contend with. And if we, we have good representatives on the ground to communicate transhumanist ideas, I think we can overcome this awareness gap. In terms of what's next for the Transhumanist Party, we hope to continue our growth in membership. We hope that it will accelerate. We're also looking for more independent local candidates to endorse. So in 2021, we endorsed Jennifer Hughes, who ran for mayor of Camden, New Jersey, and she was the first mayoral candidate in the United States, as far as we know, to have life extension as part of her platform. In 2022, we endorsed Daniel Tweed, who ran for city council in Thousand Oaks, California. And he has some very interesting ideas about environmental improvements that could be achieved through emerging technologies. And he also is an openly transhumanist candidate. So he was talking about the US Transhumanist Party core ideals. He was talking about life extension as part of his campaign. We need more people like that who are willing to run for local office. Whether they win or lose, it is not as important as having active, articulate, and passionate spokespeople for transhumanism at these kinds of levels. Because the political scene is one where there's often not a whole lot of overlap with the scientific and technological worlds. You certainly don't hear a lot of Republican or Democratic candidates talking about how advances in technology could solve a lot of the problems that they speak of. Interestingly enough, I don't think they really want to solve those problems. I think they want to keep those problems around as talking points, whereas we want to solve the problems. So technology is a crucial component for those kinds of solutions. So if you're interested in running for office or you know someone who is aligned with us and who is willing to openly express that alignment to say that they're a transhumanist or they support life extension or even just to say that they're happy to accept an endorsement from the U.S. Transhumanist Party, please get into contact with us because this is how we would spread our message. That's really exciting. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that a lot of uh, or some local politicians are actually, you know, signing up for life extension and other transhumanist ideas. That That's very exciting. And yeah, that that's great. Um, really appreciate you coming on the podcast today, Janati. Had a great talk. And yeah, I hope to talk again soon. That was, that was fun. Absolutely, Peter. It was great speaking with you. And indeed, let us speak again in the not too distant future.